Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. This week, we're going to talk about interviewing sources who have experienced deep trauma, like grieving families who have lost loved ones to homicide. In the UK, for example, knife crime continues to be a widespread problem. 218 murders with sharp instruments were recorded last year, according to the UK government, and these stories are often covered in the press. For the people that are left behind to come to terms with their loss, it feels like their world has been turned upside down. The last thing they really need is a microphone under their nose. But many still speak to the press, some against their wishes, when they're still trying to process their grief and shock. Today, we're speaking with Tamara Cherry, a crime reporter for some 15 years in Canada, turned trauma consultant, and author of The Trauma Beat, a case for rethinking the business of bad news. The next time you're tasked with talking to someone who has gone through a traumatic event, you can use the tips from today to make sure you're not contributing to their trauma, but rather speaking to them when they're ready and able. That way, you'll get the best version of their story. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Tamara, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thank you ever so much for coming onto the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Jacob. Tamara, talk to me about your career path to to kick things off, because I know you're an experienced crime reporter out in Canada, um, but more recently you've taken um, a bit of a career change to working with uh, trauma survivors. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I uh, I went into journalism school back in 2004, I think, and uh, thinking I was going to write for a snowboarding magazine, um, and then not realizing that I, how much I would fall in love with news. And my career path took me from a small newspaper in my hometown of Regina, Saskatchewan, where I am now, to a big, bit of a bigger paper, the Calgary Herald in Alberta, to the Toronto Star, which is where I really started reporting on crime and trauma on a full-time basis. After four contracts with them, I moved over to the Toronto Sun, got a full-time job there, started working on their police beat, worked at the Toronto Sun for a few years. Um, and then I was hired at CTV News Toronto, which is um, you know one of the big TV stations there as their crime specialist. So in total, I worked in Toronto for close to 15 years. And then I wanted a change. I wanted to be home for dinner with my kids. Um, and so I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. And it was actually a homicide investigator who I was chatting with about this. I don't know if I want to go into PR. It just, it wasn't something I felt passionate about. He said, well, what about doing it for victims? And a light bulb went off in my head because there had been so many times where I had gone to do these door knocks. You guys call them the death knocks in the UK, um, where it's like I would go and knock on somebody's door in the hours after they'd experienced some hugely traumatic event. And then I would, you know, take their story from them. And that's key. I was taking it. I wasn't necessarily telling it in in a collaborative way as I urge people to do now. And then I would leave and, you know, another reporter from another outlet would knock on the door and then they would leave and another reporter go and they would leave another reporter go. And I often thought like, there's just got to be a better way. I I saw a real gap in services, uh, in victim services for these victims and survivors of traumatic events. So I launched my company, Pickup Communications, a um, little more than four years ago now. Uh, the reason it's called Pickup Communications is because when I was coming up as a journalist, Jacob, um, we referred to that death knock as a pickup. Um, it was through that lens that I, I've done a 
whole whack load of research, uh, researching the impact of the media on trauma survivors and the impact of trauma on members of the media. Um, wrote a book about it. And yeah, I do a lot of work supporting trauma survivors and working with like nonprofits that support survivors. Just for the absence of doubt for our listeners, before we really get into this conversation, when we talk about survivors, I mean, are we talking about people who have literally survived like an attempted homicide? Are we talking about grieving mm -hmm. families? Who exactly are we talking about here? Right. Uh, excellent question. So when I refer to survivors of homicide, I'm referring to the people left behind. And the reason I refer to them is not to minimize the um, the fact that they were victims of this crime as well from the pain that they hear or that they that they've endured, but uh, because that's how most of them self-identified. So I, when I refer to homicide survivors, traffic fatality survivors, I'm referring to the people left behind who are left to grieve this loss. When I refer to mass violence survivors, I am most often referring to people who are present for an incident of mass violence who survived it, um, but then carry those quite often um, invisible wounds, non-physical wounds. Um, and then when I'm referring to survivors of human trafficking, sexual violence, I'm referring to the people that experienced the crime and uh, are now living with the, the scars of it. Crystal clear. You talk about uh, the death knock uh, or the pickup um, is, is, is alternatively called. Mm -hmm. The death knock, at least in this country, is often seen as a baptism of fire, really, for young reporters to kind of test their mettle, to test their nerve, to test their courage in a very awful set of circumstances. Mm. Why do we kind of ask young reporters to do that? All reporters do this, including young reporters. Um, and us journalists, we do so many things as part of the news gathering and storytelling process, I think simply because it's the way they've always been done. And because we've never been shown that many of these things that we do just by virtue of that very process are harmful and that there's a different way of doing it. Um, so that's number one. Like we do it because it's the way they've always been done. And number two, because the senior reporters or the editors, the assignment editors, the producers, that's how they came up, you know? So I, I don't know. I think that with journalism, we just think that we, you know, you need to have this armor. At least that's how I was when I was young. I, it's not that I didn't care. It's not that I was like, oh, I can just call down this phone book list. No problem. I hated doing that stuff, but I knew it was part of the job. And I was trained to gather as much information as possible, as quickly as possible, so as to tell as comprehensive of a story as possible. And for me, that meant, like, I, I'm thinking of one such um, instance where there was a homicide that happened probably, I, I don't, it must have been around five, six, seven o'clock at night. I was working the four to midnight shift and I called through the, the phone book and eventually I found the superintendent who told me about the people who lived in the unit where a woman was killed. And we, you know, I, th I think at that point I knew, yeah, I did know that she had been killed by her adult son in front of her husband slash her son's father. Um, and she told me like, oh, you know, they were, they were heavy drinkers. You're probably going to find the husband down at such and such pool hall. My trauma-informed brain of today would say, nope, I'm not making that phone call right now. This, this man just witnessed his wife being murdered by his son, allegedly, a couple hours ago. There's no way I'm calling that pool hall. But the journalist of then, who was trained to, you know, hustle and do things as quickly as possible, picked up the phone, dialed it. Hope to God that either nobody would answer or 
that they would tell me to screw off and hang up the phone or that the husband wouldn't be there. But wouldn't you know it, you know, the phone rings, the bartender answers, I ask for this gentleman and he passes the phone to him. And I interviewed this man and he was clearly drunk and every few seconds or his friend was grabbing the phone and telling me about what an awful person I was for, for bothering a man in such a state. And I, I, I think that story, it ran on A2 in the next day's paper. And I got a big pat on the back after I, like, I emerged from the radio room and went over to the editor and told him what I got. And he's like, wow, you already got the husband? It was celebrated and not like, okay, um, good effort, but we really shouldn't be calling people. You know, so I learned at a very young age that that is good journalism. I, I didn't have any courses that I can recall in journalism school or any training throughout my entire career in which I was taught about trauma, about the impact of trauma on the brain, about the impact of our job on trauma survivors. Um, but I would go on and do just that thing. And, and what I didn't mention is, too, in, in, in that instance, and I only realized this years later when I, um, when I was looking through my diary for a presentation I was giving... Um, I had also on that story inadvertently notified the best friend of the dead woman that, that it was her friend that was murdered. I'm not the person to do that, you know? Um, so, but again, it's just the way it's always been done. And so you see how that's passed down through generations of journalists, right? But again, I'm hopeful that things are starting to change, especially considering the number of young journalists who reach out to me and want to learn about this stuff. There, there is a different generation of journalists coming up. And I think that's one of the pros that they're going to bring to the industry. I'm sure you're not the only one who's made a phone call to a, to get a story and then kind of wanted the the phone to hang up or, or or it not to go through. So I think that in of itself is telling. But when you look back at that story, how do you feel about it? I uh, That story stuck with me for so many years. I would have written that story in um, 2006. It would have been probably 2006, maybe 2007. And it has stuck with me over all these years, not because I was proud of it, although I should mention I kept that clipping as to use as a clipping for future job applications because it's an A2 story, you know, and my bosses were happy with it. But it stuck with me for all my years because the interview never should have happened because of the guilt that I carried. But what was the alternative, Tamara? So um, I think that if I could go back and talk to my younger self, I would have said, you know, you can call through the apartment building, call police, find out what you can. But if somebody tells you where to find that husband, you just say, nope. And if uh, the assignment desk says to you, what about the husband? Can you find the husband? Which they probably wouldn't do because it would be ridiculous really to think that anybody would find that husband within just a few hours of the homicide, of him witnessing the homicide at the hands of their son. Um, but if somebody says that, you can just say, no, I, I know I, I, I don't have any leads. I've called through and I haven't found him. And that would be it. I wouldn't have picked up the phone and called that husband. Maybe after a couple of days, you reach out. But guess what? Like when I was doing my research, Jacob, I went back through the archives. And from what I could tell, that was the only story we ever wrote about that homicide. It was not covered through the courts. It was not followed through. So I talked to that man in some of the worst moments of his life when he was in no state to talk to me. You know, 
forget about the fact that he was drunk. That's a huge issue. But secondly, he was fully immersed in that trauma brain. He was in no state to make an informed choice as to whether or not he wanted to speak with a reporter, to be quoted in the newspaper the next day, to have that permanent record of him in the immediate aftermath. Like it was just, it was absolutely wrong. So the alternative, um, it's a smaller story that appears maybe in the B section of the newspaper, not at the front of the paper. Um, and it would have no impact on anybody because we never did any real journalism on that anyway, because that was the only story we ever did. That would have been potentially detrimental to your career. No, you did not get a huge scoop. Potentially someone else could have got that story as well. So what you're advocating for there is to put your career kind of second to the, to the, the source itself. Honestly, like it, this weighs heavily on my chest just thinking about this. Like I, I just feel, um, I feel that like emotion again coming back to me and of, of, of making that phone call and it, and just like, it, it's honestly, it's like it was yesterday and we're talking about something that happened almost two decades ago. Um, yes, there are other circumstances though where it probably would have been detrimental to my career. Absolutely. Um, and so there are things that I could tell my younger self, um, but some of those conversations with my younger self would be, this might not be the path for you because you might not be able to do this job in the way that you don't find, you know, morally reprehensible at times. Um, but it, it really messes with your brain, Jacob, because like I said, you're celebrated for doing these things and you also have gone into this industry. I mean, I wanted to write for snowboarding magazines, but then when I fell in love with news, I went into this job because I wanted to make a positive impact in the world because I wanted to amplify the voices of the marginalized, of the traumatized. So I used all of these things to justify, you know, the, the means of getting to that, that final quote unquote powerful story. The other thing you probably needed was an editor who said, you interviewed a, a drunk person. We can't run this. You interviewed yeah. someone this soon into the process. We can't use this. Yes. You needed someone more senior than yourself to intervene and say this yes. is up to the standards that we should adhere to. And and that's something that my therapist has reminded me of because I've spent a lot of money on therapy. Unfortunately, none of it while I was um, covered by the benefits of my previous of my journalism employer. I've spent a lot of money on like dealing with vicarious trauma of the job. Um, but I've probably spent even more money dealing with the moral injury of the job and that guilt that I carried. And, and I, I've talked to my, my therapist about like, for example, when I was researching my book, I found, um, an old voice recording from an interview that I did in the summer of 2007 with a woman. And what I had remembered of this story was how important it was. You know, this is a woman whose son was murdered in a, in a car to car drive by shooting. And I'll never forget the image of her arriving on scene with, she had just been at the salon. She arrived on scene with curlers in her hair and just collapsing outside the police tape. It was like a daylight shooting and her other son was there and he couldn't do anything to console her. It was just this gut wrenching picture that ran, I think even on the front page the next day. And I went to her home and interviewed her. And she told me about how if she had more money, she would have moved her family elsewhere that, you know, she, she was busy working like three jobs. So she couldn't see who her son was hanging out with all these things. And I was like, people need to hear this. Right. 
But then I found this voice recording and in that voice recording, it showed she didn't even want to talk to me. In fact, she even told me in it, I'm only talking to you because I want you to go away. And I went to my therapist with this and I was like, oh my God. And um, I felt so much guilt all these years later. And my therapist said, like, how old were you at the time? I'm like, I would have been like 21, 22 years old. She's like, yeah. So you were really young and you had people who are in positions of power who should have been taking care of you and telling you how to do things and you didn't. And so then I went through a period of resentment, but you're, you're exactly right. And that is, that is a big problem. And that is why change really needs to come from, it, it needs to come from all over, but the top really needs to be a part of this conversation. We cannot see meaningful change. We cannot see trauma-informed journalism the way that it needs to be done to, to be actually trauma-informed without trauma-informed editors, producers, directors, all of these things right up the chain. If you think the death knock is daunting for journalists, and it is, make no mistake, spare a thought for the person on the other side of the door you're knocking on who is experiencing grief, shock, and what Tamara calls trauma brain, a state of being vulnerable to long-term trauma if they cannot process these events with enough time and space. The worst days of their lives are often the most newsworthy events of ours, and unfortunately the hungry machine of news often encourages journalists to be heavy-handed, insensitive and intrusive in these horrific moments. We're going to spend a lot of time today talking about how to deal with the public when they don't want or aren't ready to talk to the press. But not everyone is in that boat. You may well encounter people who do want to talk to the media, and many of the same best practices apply. Give them enough information to make an informed decision on whether they want to contribute. Be flexible with the images they're comfortable sharing, where they do the interview, and how much you're asking of them. We'll talk later on as well about being flexible with our editorial policies too. Now, there's also people who you're about to notify them of a loved one's passing. That's a very precarious situation that journalists should not engage with any further if this appears to be the case, and a situation which can be avoided altogether by using intermediaries like Tamara's that relay information between families, the press, and emergency services. So what is the potential harm we can do to survivors when they are coerced into speaking too soon into their grieving process? That's what we're going to dive into next. I had many survivors in my research talk about um, the feeling of being harassed, stalked, followed, hunted by the media, um, and the impact that had on them when they were in this state of trauma brain, as I like to refer to it, where they had this heightened sense of fear and distrust, and then they had the media coming at them from all over and they didn't know what to do. They felt unsupported. They felt... Um, exposed, they felt exploited. Um, and sometimes they didn't even really realize what was going on in the time. And then months later, they reflected back and they th said, I remember not wanting to talk. I'm sure I told somebody that. I'm sure I would have said no. Why were they interviewing me? And they see these images of themselves on TV and the internet that live forever. I think when I when I talk about my uh, my research involving uh, survivors of traffic fatalities and homicides, I think I don't have my numbers in front of me, Jacob, but I think there were 71 survivors involved in that part of the research. And more than half of them said the media contributed to their trauma. So as a journalist, we would often say, well, it's not us that are inflicting 
the harm on these survivors. It was the drunk driver that did this. It was the distracted driver. It was the guy with the gun. It was the the husband. It was this like, this is just an unfortunate part of the process that they get hounded by the media. Actually, it's us that's doing this because right now we're not talking about the pain of the homicide. Right now we're talking about the pain of being harassed by the media with no supports around you when you don't know what your rights are or anything because majority of survivors, in my research anyway, never had any experience to the media before they experienced this hugely traumatic event. Um, And yet most of them were contacted by the media within, you know, when we're talking about survivors of homicide, traffic fatalities, and mass violence, most of them were contacted by members of the media within the first like 24 to 48 hours when they were in no state to talk. So what they don't realize is that one of the ways that trauma can impact the brain is it can actually impact a survivor's ability to share their story accurately. The brain on trauma can jumble up the uh, the chronology of events. So they say something happened at this time, then it actually happened at this time, and you're not getting factual um, information. I had a survivor, a mass violence survivor um, in my research who's in my book as well, who survived a mass shooting at her high school. And she spoke to a journalist, I think she said two or three days after the fact, and said that when she emerged from that school with her hands above her head, there was a military tank outside her school. There was no military tank there. And I I researched it. I tried to find whether that quote ever ran. I couldn't find it. Chances are it didn't because the journalist would have known, no, there was no military tanks there. But that is just an example of an inaccuracy making potentially making its way into the story. There was there was another person who was part of my research and had filled out one of my surveys and said that her son, who had been murdered, had been stabbed in one part of his body when it was actually the other part of his body. So anything there from a quite a small inaccuracy right the way up to like quite a large fabrication of reality. Oh, for sure. Who knows? If you're saying that we're interviewing these kids as they're coming out of this high school because people need to know what happened, well, you actually might not be getting an accurate story. You know, how many times have we knocked on doors? I know I've done this where you go and you knock on doors after a shooting and you've got one person say it was pop, 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 the gunshots. And another person says it was pop, 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 you know? And it's another person that says it definitely sounded like this. And you can get all sorts of different takes on things. And it's because, you know, the the courts, at least in Canada, have recognized the unreliability of eyewitness testimony after a traumatic event. Um, and journalists need to recognize that too. As well as the, the harm that it can do to be so intrusive in this stage of the grieving process, I suppose another element is that it's disruptive to the healing process as well, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's disruptive to so many things. So I had um, survivors tell me that because of the media attention in the immediate aftermath of their loved one's death, they weren't able to concentrate on things like funeral arrangements. They weren't able to properly care for, um, surviving loved ones, like their other children or, um, you know, the, the siblings or what have you. But then also, um, Louise Godbold, who is a trauma expert, and uh, a trauma survivor, I, I had her on the first season of my podcast, and she talked about the impact of telling one story over and over and over again, and how that can actually make survivors get sort of stuck on high, where they get stuck in this stress response and they can't come back down. So when you think about survivors who are, you know, survivors of an event that is very high profile, and if they talk to the media in the immediate aftermath, 
the media is more likely to contact them over and over and over again. You know, oh, there was an arrest. Oh, it's a one month anniversary. Oh, it's a six month anniversary. Now it's the court case. Now it's the one year, all these things. And they keep going back to them over and over and over again, ask them to retell their story. And it's not just one journalist doing it, but like a dozen or two dozen, um, then that can actually have an impact on their brain's ability to heal from the trauma. Mm. I think that segues really nicely into something I know that you we've, we've spoken about previously, which is bending the rules when it comes to dealing with trauma from an editorial policy standpoint. I know previously in this interview, you spoke about how people kind of regretted speaking to the media after the fact when they listened back to what they said or the images they shared. In terms of a specific editorial policy to suggest when it comes to trauma, would it be some sort of flexibility with with, with how we work with, with sources? Yeah, 100%. You need to be flexible. You need to just throw out the handbook for how you deal with these stories usually. And just ask yourself, if this is not an accountability interview, if I am only speaking to this person so that they can share their story of trauma, then I need to do it in these in this way. So what does that look like? Um, things that you would typically not do in other in other interviews, giving questions ahead of time not turning on your microphone or your camera or your voice recorder until you've had a fulsome conversation ahead of time, until you can get a real handle on what are the safe questions and what are the unsafe questions. There's one homicide survivor, Shauna Brown, who talked to me about the importance of closing the trauma lid after you've opened it. There were so many times as a journalist for me where I would swoop into people's homes and take all their trauma and they're crying and everything. And then I say, I'm so sorry for your loss. I got to run out the door and go file my story. When And I just left them in like a, a deplorable state, you know? And what I've learned from survivors is the importance of, of closing that trauma jar. So having a conversation ahead of time can help you understand what will help bring them to back to a safe space. So for example, um, I do a lot of work, Jacob still um, doing like fill-in radio hosting in Canada. And if I have to do a live interview with a trauma survivor, like a homicide survivor, for example, I will have a conversation with them ahead of time to say, okay, so how do you feel talking about your son that was murdered? Is this something that would leave you in a good space or in a bad space? And nine times out of 10, they say, oh, definitely good. I love that. Then I, so I say, okay, I'm going to leave that question until the end because I'm not going to be able to have a, a decompressing conversation with you after because it's going to be going on to the next segment. So I'm going to leave you with that at the end so that I'm leaving you in a healthier place and not with all of these open wounds. And then I'm going to check in on you later. So that's another thing, checking in on them. The biggest thing that reporters and editors have a really hard time wrapping their heads around because they think that it goes against you know, the most um, essential tenets of journalism is showing survivors your story before sharing it with the rest of the world. So our instinct as journalists, of course, is to say, but then they'll just ask us to change things or they might, you know, rescind their consent to participate in the story. You know, what, what are the implications of that? To which I say, first of all, we go back to that trauma brain and how that can impact a survivor's ability to tell their story accurately. Your story will be more accurate if you let them look at it because there's a good chance, depending on how much trauma you're getting into, that there might be little details that either you got wrong or they got wrong. Um, you will cause less harm to them by not inadvertently using words that might cause more harm for them. So for example, there was one trauma survivor. Um, there's a, um, a nonprofit that I do a lot of work with up here in Canada that supports 
first responders and military veterans who suffer occupational stress injuries. And quite often they have trauma survivors like military veterans, like traumatized first responders acting as their ambassadors for campaigns. So there was one instance where, you know, I was pitching stories and working with this survivor and it was this veteran. And I asked the journalist, like, okay, can you send us a copy of the script before it airs? Um, and she said, don't tell our bosses I did this. I'm just doing this because I know you and I respect what you're trying to do and everything like that. So she sends the script. And of course, because this is the way that journalists write their stories. And I hadn't thought about this before when I was um, consulting with the survivor ahead of time. She referred to him first by his, his first and second name, first and last name. And then every other reference just referred to him by his last name. And when he saw that in the script, he it it brought him back to some hugely traumatic stuff when he was in the military, when they only referred to him by his last name. So he said, is there any way that she can just refer to me by, by my first name and last name, or just my first name, or by, you know, sergeant or corporal, such and such. And I went back to her and I explained it and she said, yeah, absolutely no problem. And so that harm was mitigated by having him look at that because I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there, essentially about putting the source in front of the story, whether that's avoiding re-traumatizing the event, whether that's managing expectations, whether that's being flexible with editorial policies. I suppose one of the big ones that we haven't spoken about is changing the record after the fact when they've said something and giving them the freedom to maybe go back on something they've said. Mm. Um, is that something you've explored at all? And do you have any advice on that? So that is another thing where journalists will say, well, you said this, so I can't change your quote. If I'm doing an interview with you, a homicide survivor, and you say something, and then afterwards I send you the story and they say, oh, I, I really didn't mean to talk about that. Can you take that out? Yes, you take it out. Because if that was their not their intention, if they just got cajoled into saying something or whatever, um, or if they say, can you just clean it up so it sounds better? Like, can you just reword it so it sounds like this? I didn't realize that I kept saying like or ah uh, or whatever. Could we re-record this? Yes, because it's still their words. We're not talking about a politician who's saying like, shoot, I just implicated myself in something. I need to backtrack on that. We are talking about somebody who's sharing a story of their trauma. They should be allowed to go back and change their words. Likewise, if you talk to somebody in the immediate aftermath and they're clearly in that state of uh, shock, you know, in that cloud of shock, they're clearly on trauma brain. Um, and they call you up a few months later and say, can you please take that down? Like that, what I said in those six hours after my son was murdered, that does not reflect my views. I, I don't even remember saying these things. And I'm, I am mortified that that exists online. If there is not a greater good, good to be served by keeping that online, and there probably isn't, when, especially when we're talking about daily breaking news, take it down. I guess an editor listening in might be concerned that they'd be setting a precedent that would be difficult for their newsroom to uphold and other people might use that for their own uh, sort of arguments. Is there, a, is there a counter argument to that at all? Yeah. What, what I would say is, you know, in my nearly 15 years of reporting traumatic stories, I, I can barely think of any circumstances where a trauma survivor followed up and said, can you take down this photo or can you take out this quote or can you change it? It actually, for me, did not happen that often. So you're not setting a precedent where, you know, every survivor that agrees to be interviewed is only going to have their story up for a day and then it's going to be taken down. If Especially if you're reporting these stories in a trauma-informed way 
where that survivor has agency and is a real part of the the storytelling process. At the end, like your ultimate goal of this trauma-informed journalism is to leave that survivor feeling better after the story is is told than before it was told because the message that they wanted to share is actually heard. Well, how about this radical thought then for a second? What about the stories that aren't sourced? And just one um, editorial policy to suggest as, as we close this uh, episode that's come to mind, why not give reporters a prerogative to bid a story or not run an interview if they just have that gut feeling that it's not right, that what they're doing feels intrusive? For sure. Newsrooms need to be um, fostering environments that promote not only self-care and trauma-informed journalism, but the ability to trust your gut with things. But I, I wouldn't word it that way. I wouldn't say trust your gut and don't run the story if it doesn't feel right. I would say maybe that means you need to have another conversation with the survivor. Like, I know you said you wanted to talk to me, but I'm feeling like you, this has not been a positive experience for you and I don't want to cause further harm. Um, do you want to continue with this or do you want to take a day to think about this? We don't need to run it right now. And they might say, oh, that I, I have that option. Like, yeah, if I could just sleep on it because I'm really not myself. I've not slept for the last 72 hours. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. And maybe they come back and they're like, yeah, okay. Or maybe they come back and they say, you know what? Um, I'm fine with it all, but I'm, the reason that what you're sensing right now is because I didn't mean to talk about this one thing. Like, can we just take that out? I didn't want to mention my other kids' names or I don't, I don't want you to be taking pictures of them. Can we just leave that out of it? And then, yes, absolutely. We'll, we'll um, avoid those clips and we'll delete these thumbnails that have your, your kids' images and, and all that stuff. So it's about having that conversation because we also don't want to be infantilizing survivors um, to the point of like, mm, you know what, you're, you just talked to me, you said you want to talk, but uh, I'm not going to run the story because then that's taking away their choice and their voice. But you're not truly giving them a choice if you're not giving them enough enough information to provide that informed consent. So 100% um, from the top down, you need to be empowering your journalists to be reporting in a trauma-informed way. And sometimes that means that even though you freed up this journalist for the day to drive out to do that interview, it might not be filling a slot on the six o'clock news. Um, or it might not be filling that A1 spot in the paper that you were thinking it was going to fill. Um, and it's just understanding that, you know, even though we've had so much control for so long in journalism when it comes to telling these traumatic stories, we need to relinquish some of that control. And it, it means sometimes not getting the story that you thought that you were going to get. But quite often that will mean a better story down the road because that person will talk to you when they are in a better state to do so, when they have their facts in front of them, when they've thought through what they want to communicate and they're able to do it in a very thoughtful, cohesive manner. Um, and, and your readers and your viewers and your listeners will be better served for it. Tamara, thanks ever so much for coming on our podcast and talking about this. Really do appreciate it. Jacob, thanks so much for, for providing me the platform. My takeaway for today is to borrow a quote from Tamara. Give survivors both a voice and a choice in how they contribute. Getting these engagements wrong between grieving families and the press weighs heavily on both sides. To find a more constructive way forward, we need flexibility and empathy inside and outside the newsroom. I'd love to know what you took from today's conversation. Find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, slash X at JPT Journalism, or email me at jacob at journalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our episodes on all your usual podcast platforms, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search 
and subscribe to the journalism.co.uk podcast. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>